Thank you for joining me for Soulful Conversations with my community of fellow travelers, exploring the heart, the mind, and the globe. These conversations highlight what travel really means for the world. Soul of Travel honors the passion and dedication of the people making a positive impact in tourism. Each week, I'll be speaking to women who are tourism professionals, world travelers, and leaders in their communities. We'll explore how travel has changed them and how that has rippled out and inspired them to change the world. These conversations are as much about travel as they are about passion and living life with purpose, chasing dreams, building businesses, and having the desire to make the world a better place. This is a community of people who know travel is more than a vacation. It is an opportunity for personal awareness, and it is a vehicle for change. We are thought leaders, action takers, and heart-centered change makers. I'm Christine Weinbrenner-Eyrich, and this is The Soul of Travel. Fiona Jeffrey has had a long and accomplished career working in the travel industry and was responsible for world travel market from 1986 to 2013. In 1996, before there was very much talk about environmental issues, she created and launched a global responsible tourism drive across the industry. World Responsible Tourism Day, created in association with UN World Tourism Organization, is now the largest responsible tourism gathering across the world. Two years later, as a part of her sustainability drive, Fiona also founded and is chair of the international water and community development charity, Just a Drop, bringing sustainable, safe water, sanitation, and hygiene education to communities across Asia, Africa, and Latin America, This organization supports 12 out of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals and to date has worked in 32 countries and changed the lives of over 1.8 million people. In our conversation, Fiona shares more about her career in tourism and we talk about where the industry has been and where she sees it going, as well as the need for the future of this industry to be more thoughtful and engage travelers in a way that creates a greater impact. She shares how Just a Drop was created, why this work is so meaningful, and how access to clean water is connected to many other social issues. Her passion, enthusiasm, optimism, and dedication inspire me to stay committed to crafting meaningful and impactful travel experiences with my company, Lotus Sojourns. Join me now for my soulful conversation with Fiona Jeffrey. Welcome to Soul of Travel. I am so excited today to be sitting down and joined by Fiona Jeffrey, and she is joining us from England today. And this is a real kind of exciting uh, moment for me. Uh, Fiona has had a really long career that I really admire in the tourism industry. And so I'm really excited to share your story and to have you join me. So uh, welcome, Fiona. Well, thank you, Christine. It's really kind of you to invite me. So I'm delighted to be here this evening. Thank you. Um, We're going to begin our conversation. I would love for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself and um, share a little bit about who you are in the space of travel. And then we're going to uh, go to the beginning of your tourism roots and explore how travel has kind of shaped where you are today. So we'll just begin with a brief introduction. Okay, well, um, as I say, lovely to talk to you. Um, and I'm, I'm Fiona Jeffrey. And you might have gathered from my accent that I'm Scottish. So I was born in Scotland, and my parents were a doctor and a nurse. And I mentioned that simply because actually, I think that's really, um, without me realizing it, it quite influenced the, the journey that I eventually went on. 
Um, because initially my intention was to become a doctor. Um, I'm actually a failed doctor in that sense, because I realized in my teens that actually I wasn't tough enough and probably scientific enough to be a really good doctor. So I changed course and ended up studying languages at Edinburgh University. So I did French, Spanish and Italian and loved that. Um, but then when I finished university, I thought I'd go into retailing and become an international buyer. And instead, I ended up working in the events and exhibition industry across a whole host of industries. But within that portfolio was World Travel Market, which at its time was in its infancy. It was only five years old, um, a very UK orientated event. Mm -hmm. And that gave me my first foray into travel. And um, I don't think I ever looked back because I just loved the industry and saw the potential of it. And, um, and so developed my career within travel and tourism that way. Thank you. I love hearing how travel finds people. It's like it has its own agenda and it says like, I'll take you and I'll take you. And even though we have maybe some other plan, I just love that people come to tourism from so many different places, which then in turn makes this industry so unique because there's so many different perspectives and ways that people approach travel and then tourism really becomes more of this container for examining the world and how we interact in it and less about actually traveling from this industry perspective. I think it's just such a cool place. Like if you're working as a doctor, you don't often have people who were also engineers and who were teachers and who were authors, like they're doctors, <laughs> they're scientists, and every once in a while, maybe a researcher or something like that, or a second career as a doctor, but like, it's very specific. And so I think this industry is uniquely poised for kind of what I talk about in the industry of creating real change because people have so many different approaches to the intersection of global sustainability and what tourism can do for the world because of these perspectives. So thank you for sharing that. Like you mentioned, you know, growing up with your parents, that also influences how you see tourism. And so I think every little piece of the puzzle really tell, helps to tell the story and shape the story of this industry. So looking at your time with uh, World Travel Market, you said you started with it when it was in its infancy. It has grown to be one of the major events, if not the major event, um, global event in travel. It expanded from being just this UK-focused um, tourism gathering can you talk about kind of your time there and how this started to take you in the direction of uh, responsible tourism and sustainable tourism? Where did that uncover itself? Sure. Well, um, when I when I started, my the key focus of my I, I was at a very junior level. I was at an entry level, yeah, junior marketing executive, and my job then was to it helped internationalize world travel market, bring in more people from across the world, encourage the French to do business with Chileans, for the Middle East to start doing business with the USA, for seeing cross-pollinization between Latin America and parts of Asia. So it was, it was all about facilitating international business. And the industry was at a time of growth and development. You know, you, we had the low cost airlines. Um, people were really on this, this, um, growth bandwagon within tourism and world travel market helped facilitate that and helped catalyze a lot of it, which in lots of ways was very, very positive. Um, but in 1996, um, I took over the reins of world travel market. So I'd been working on the event for some time prior to that. And when I took over the reins, I, I just ended up thinking, you know, if it's an industry, we don't protect the very product we're seeking to promote, then we will destroy our own business model. And to me, that seemed hugely stupid and actually totally irresponsible. 
And so I set about um, developing an initiative at World Travel Market, which at the time was called Environmental Awareness Day. And it was all about trying to educate the industry on the importance of the environment and why we should be more um, responsible and protective of it in in our day-to-day businesses. And I remember the very first event that I ran we, you know, we attracted 5,000 companies from 190 countries around the world, over 45,000 people. And the very first event I ran in 1996 attracted a total of 30 people. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. It was quite an international audience, but it wasn't getting that much traction, clearly. And I didn't give up on it. But it became World Responsible Tourism Day. And it's now, we did it in partnership with the United Nations. And it's now the largest gathering of responsible tourism professionals in in the world. But it's taken 25 odd years to get to that point. So 1996, that was the my experience then. And so I thought, okay, I've also got to come up with a better idea. Something that the industry um, feels that it can't ignore. And so I started to look for, I was looking for something at the same time I'd just become a mum. And that also changes your perspective on things. And so I was looking for a cause that I felt reflected in the needs of children and families, because I recognised that there were lots of people in tourism that were actually families and, and parents, but it had to be global in its reach because we're a global industry, and it also had to have environmental values, which reflected my priorities, really. And I started doing my research, and then I learned that um, a child died every 17 seconds from dirty water because of the effects of diarrhea, bilharzia, cholera, those sorts of things. And that really shocked me as a young mum. And then I also learned at that time that just one pound or a dollar and 50 cents as it was at the time could actually deliver clean water to a child for nearly 10 years. And I just thought, wow, if I can get a pound or a dollar off everybody coming to World Travel Market, then that would give me 55,000 pounds, $45,000. And I could really do something with that. And that's why I called it just a drop because my premise and principle was if everybody in the industry was willing to give me a pound or a dollar, then collectively as an industry, we could make a real difference and we could create real impact with that and we could help transform lives as a result. And therefore, um, it had its environmental connotations and it has many more now, but at least the industry was socially engaging with communities across the world by giving back. And so that's really how my journey evolved into both of those spaces. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's just so interesting to think about the difference in the industry um, from nine, 1996 until now and how much um, the focus has shifted, especially the last two years, to being more responsible looking at the ways tourism has impacted the world and how we want that to look in the future. And so I think so many businesses are looking for something like Just a Drop to be um, aligned with, but then also to learn from and say, like, how can we take what we have and and do something more with it? Like, how do how does travel just become this platform for the change that we want to see in the world. And um, I think it's a really exciting time to see the innovation that's already occurred in the last um, 18 months to two years and to think about where we'll be having this conversation in another 10 years. And hopefully it's like, what? There was a time we didn't talk about sustainable tourism. Like, why was that ever a, a fad or a trend, you know? Well, I mean, when I started back in 96, people didn't really understand sustainability. They did, it, people found that word very confusing, um, which is why at the time we used the words responsible tourism, because I think people could, could understand that better. Personally, now I think the time has changed that, you know, it's not about generating awareness and understanding 
any longer. You know, we have to move way beyond that. And it, it really is about action. And I think one of the reasons why I set up Just to Drop and continue to get involved in the sustainability and environmental space is for me, actions have always spoken louder than words. And, you know, there's so much talk. Our industry has an enormous amount of power to facilitate change, but it doesn't always use it. And so I think words are easy and actions need to speak louder. And so I would be encouraging anybody in, in the tourism space now to really, really think about how they can develop and, and evolve what they have been doing. And, and I think, you know, the pandemic has been a real disaster for our industry, but, it, but the planet has been seen to benefit. And I think there's a real message there to all of us that says, um, okay, as we rebuild our industry, you know, we, it is not right to build in the way that we were doing before. We have to change our approach and we have to be much more conscious of our of our footprints and we have to look at how do we mitigate that. And we can still create wonderful journeys and experiences for people because there's so much good that our industry can help people experience, but we have to do it differently. And going back to the way it was, is, to my mind, unacceptable. Yeah. And I I just was thinking about the initial, kind of when I began engaging in tourism from that sustainable or responsible lens. And I even, I have my master's in sustainable destination management. And I remember telling people, and they just look at me like, I have no idea what you just said to me. (laughs) So it's definitely been like, uh, it's been a a bit of an uphill climb, but I I do think, like you said, that the, the period of like education and easing people into the idea that this might be what we need, I feel like is coming to an end. And this action forward time is really what we're seeing. I know that with Just a Drop and also um, with World Tourism Day, um, a lot of what you have focused on is the UN Sustainable Development Goals um, and that your organization supports 12 out of 17 of those goals. Um, Would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about um, what those goals are, how that supports your work and and what that means within this context? Sure. Well, water is the essence of life. And um, I didn't realize this when I started um, because what really catalyzed me to to focus on water was the fact that a child died so quickly, you know, 17 seconds. And I felt the industry could have an impact on that. But what I learned as I um, got more um, involved in it was just how transformational providing access to a safe water supply is to people. So, you know, currently there are women and children trekking six kilometres a day to collect water. That water's dirty. It makes them sick and ill. And they don't have necessarily the money for medicines to help help make them feel better. Because they're spending all that time trekking, they are vulnerable. They, you know, we have had instances of women and children being raped or abducted and recruited into things like the Lord's Resistance Army, um, being attacked by wild animals. Um, So there's a health and safety issue associated with that. But if you provide a safe, clean water supply to communities close to their homes, they're not spending that time doing that kind of trekking. It means that the women have more time to do potentially income generating um, occupations and we help them with with loans and and training to do that. But it also means that um, with water, they can grow crops. With crops, they can feed their families. And with excess crops, they can trade and that helps them get out of the poverty trap. And as a consequence of that, they're then able to pay their children's school fees to be able to go to school. So it immediately impacts, you know, SDGs one to six. So um, poverty reduction, health and wellness, um, good education, 
uh, equality of girls because we help girls stay in school because we um, teach them about menstrual hygiene management. And one of the things that I found quite horrific was how many girls actually drop out of school when they reach puberty, but also what they have to cope with because they don't understand what's happening to their bodies. Um, Boys in school don't understand that either, Um, nor even do some of the mothers. And when we learned that some, some of the girls, when they went to their mothers or their fathers to actually get some help, some of the girls were being beaten up by their fathers because they thought it was a sign that they'd been sleeping with other men. So there's a whole host of taboos and misinterpretations of something that is actually about women being normal. And so by providing menstrual hygiene management in schools where we teach not just the girls, but the male, female teachers and the boys, then you create a greater sense of understanding and equality. And girls are encouraged to stay in school. And then a lot of the work that we're also doing, which is linked to preserving water, um, we build things like sand dams in semi-arid environments like Kenya. And by putting more water into those sand dams, it, it improves the water table. So it helps mitigate against climate change. Um, people are able to grow terraces. And from that, we can grow crops which enable them to have greater food security. So it reduces no hunger and it also facilitates um, climate mitigation, which again is one of the, the, the sustainable development goals. And I suppose another key one, because there's so many, I won't mention them all, but another key one for us would be partnership. And, you know, we really believe in partnership. We can't do what we do in the countries that we're operating in without the help and support of our partners. And they fall into two camps. One is our local partners in the field who are all local people who are supporting us and we're supporting them and the work that we do. And also our partners in terms of um, the corporate world who um, are individual donors or philanthropists who are investing in us, I believe, to create long-term legacies um, and again, this goes back to the, my whole concept behind sustainability, because I first set up just to drop. I was aware that there were thousands of discarded hand pumps across lots of parts of the world, but Africa particularly. And I was horrified at the level of investment that had gone into those and the fact that it had become wasted and it wasn't there doing the purpose that it was created for in the first place. So I absolutely vowed that we would not be that kind of organization and that, you know, even if we were small, whatever we did was going to have a long-standing sustainable impact. And, and so the way we operate is that we work with the local communities so that they have ownership of what we're doing together. They are trained in how to maintain and look after those programs and we continue to support and help them and we monitor for a minimum of seven years. And that way, we have a partnership with our funding partners and our local partners and the communities that is sustainable, long lasting. And and people can have faith that they are genuinely making a difference and transforming people's lives for the long term. Hey, it's Christine, interrupting this episode for a moment to make sure you know you still have time to join our 2022 Lotus Book Sojourn. This is a unique journey exploring the heart, the mind, and the globe through the pages of nine specially selected books written by inspiring female authors. Your year-long journey will include 18 guided virtual discussions with a community of like-hearted women, as well as weekly journaling prompts and reflection, and an assigned travel companion for each book in the journey. Last year, women said this was one of the most surprising and impactful experiences they had. Join us for rich discussion, meaningful connection, and opportunity for exploration from the comfort of your home or wherever you might be in 2022. Our first book club gathering on Zoom is January 12th. Visit the website at www.lotussojourns.com backslash book sojourn to join today. Now, back to our soulful conversation. 
Well, one of the things that I really wanted to get across in this interview is how impactful water is to so many things. So I really appreciate how you took us through those, some of those goals to show just how clearly that it is related to so many parts of our lives and what an important issue this is globally. And I think this also goes to travel. I think this is where, why we see so many travel leaders that become engaged in this type of work during their career or after their tourism career is the opportunity to travel and see what it's like in other parts of the world to really engage with communities and understand the issues and needs that they're facing from an authentic view, not just this outsider view of issues, but actually being on the ground and taking time to connect with local communities and see these larger impacts. Um, I think we can travel and as a traveler who can't find clean drinking water when you're traveling somewhere, we can immediately understand there's that need, right, for clean drinking water. But we might not think about these women and children walking for miles and miles to gather water and what that means for them in terms of, as you mentioned, their safety. And then to peel it back another step to say, like, well, if they're spending these hours and hours collecting water, then as you mentioned, they they can't be working, they can't be in school. And so I just, I really appreciate that deeper understanding of what something as simple, seemingly simple as clean water really means for people and for communities. I just think it's so deeply important to have that broader understanding of what it means. It's easy to, to dismiss something that seems on the surface so simple or that seems like we could just send a water pump and that would solve the issue or we can provide bottled water and it will solve the issue but we're not really solving the issue we're just providing this temporary relief of something and so I just think um, I really value that perspective that you shared and it also reminded me of something that comes up a lot in these conversations is how we can give better and how we can invest better so that we aren't doing something like providing, you know, water pumps or wells or things that aren't sustainable. So can you talk to me a little bit about that process? How, I know you said you worked with communities to kind of devise what their needs are, what would actually support them, but how did you determine what would be the best way to support communities with clean water? Okay, well, um, some of it starts with um, the Just a Drop team, who are a team of specialist um, engineers and hydrogeologists. So they um, really understand how to create, um, and many of them are actually, they're all volunteers and a number of them are ex-military. So they know how to deal with very difficult environments. But, you know, the British Army have got a good reputation in terms of how to engage with communities. So what happens is that some of our officers will go into the field and they will sit down and talk to the communities directly and they will ask them exactly what it is that they need and um, where they where they believe the solution lies and our team then have the environmental engineering and hydrogeology expertise to be able to ascertain whether that's actually achievable or not and you know one of our our team, for example, will sit down with a village in, village community in India, and we we make sure that we get all the women involved, so that it's they it is an inclusive um, uh, discussion. It's not done by all the men in the village. Actually, everybody has to get involved, and they will sit and they will draw on the ground a map of the village, and they will start to work out where do they think that the best places might be. Then we assess the terrain and with all our programs and projects in whatever country we are, we take huge account of the environmental, um, you know, the environment directly. So our solutions are quite different depending on which country we're in. So, for example, in, in Kenya, we would um, look at doing projects like the building of sand dams where you structure a dam across a dry riverbed 
and the sand collects and you capture the water during the rainy season because otherwise it just disappears and runs off. Or within a rock catchment, we will take a rock side of a, of a hillside, clean it of all the vegetation so that when the water comes, it hits the, the rock face and the water then trickles into tanks that we create and construct. And that way we can store water for the long term. And it's a, another form of rainwater harvesting. We do rainwater harvesting for schools. But in Cambodia, where the um, groundwater is often polluted and badly polluted um, to the point that it can even have, you know, a, we find traces of arsenic in it. Then we end up using biosan filters and we issue those to each um, household so that when they collect water from a centralised pump, they then filter it in their own homes. Um, in Nicaragua, we run piped water systems directly into people's homes. In Uganda, we can be doing shallow wells or borehole wells. Um, so every environment is slightly different, but it's sensitive to those environmental conditions and it's absolutely sensitive to the um, social needs of, of the communities that we're trying to support. Yeah, that's so, it's so incredible to think about that level of um, diversity across the offerings, because like you said, every place is so different in its specific needs and how they can manage it. And um, a lot of times I think that we create this kind of blanket solution and we try to go from one place to the next and replicate it because it worked here and it should work here and it should work here. And then that's where we come into this problem of this, um, you know, our philanthropic efforts or volunteer efforts really not serving the community because we aren't taking the time to ensure that it's what the community actually needs or will benefit. And so thank you for sharing that because I think it's really important to see that it needs to be this community-led program and also that engagement initially helps to ensure, I'm sure you've found the sustainability of this project over the long term. If they are invested that deeply from the beginning, they're going to help to ensure that it continues within each community. Absolutely. And we we talk about about working to the hee-hee principles. And hee-hee is actually a Tanzanian stool with three legs. So our legs are water, sanitation and hygiene education. But the seat of the stool is the community. And the community are the people that pull the whole thing together. And yes, they do need our help and support, not just financial, but technical, but it's also the training and development that we do with the community so that they know how to look after our projects, their projects, when it is complete. And I remember, I remember going to um, see one of our projects in Uganda and this was a borehole and it was in the middle of nowhere in a village. And uh, there were two young boys and two older men. And they, I wish I filmed this at the time, but I didn't. But they demonstrated to me how they had been trained to take this entire hand pump apart, clean it and pull, pull it, put it all back together again. And it took about 40 minutes, but the whole village came out to watch them do it. And they were trained to do that every few months. And I spoke to one of the boys afterwards and I said to him, how long did it take you to to learn how to do this? And, and he said, well, it took about three months. He said, but my family are really proud of me. My village community is really proud of me. And I now want to become a mechanical engineer. And this was a young lad in a very remote community. But you know, it, it is by sort of um, giving people the, this vital, vital leg up. And, and the thing that I've seen and noticed in all my travels around the world and wherever you might be, um, you know, as people, we all want the same things largely when it comes to the basics. You know, we, we want, we want our families and our children to be healthy. We want them to, you know, get a good education. We want them to be safe. You know, 
And so these are basics that, you know, everybody should be entitled to. And I suppose just to drop looks to facilitate and support that. And we do that with, you know, the generous support of travel companies that sort of understand that there is an opportunity to um, make a difference whilst they're also making a difference in the journeys and the holiday experiences that they, they are creating for others. Yeah, and I, I also love this idea and coming back to your initial description of it being just a drop, that it's not necessarily this huge commitment or um, it eases this ability to give back, right? And it, it doesn't overburden small companies like myself. I can be involved in this. I don't have to say I can't be involved because I don't make millions of dollars every year. I can still give what I can give. And I love that idea of it being really inclusive in terms of giving and support as well and as being easy and then also being um, really clear in what it's creating. Um, I just think all of that is a really, um, I really appreciate that in the model. And I love that it allows for me to be something that, me and others like myself to be engaged in something that has a larger ripple effect while still being able to just give what I can give. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I think charitable giving is a very personal thing. Um, and we look to be, um, you know, a personal charity and, you know, our cause will not necessarily have um, resonance with everybody. Um, but those it does have resonance with, we, we totally embrace. We feel that they become part of the, you know, just a drop family and, um, because they're integral to us being able to do what, what we're attempting to do, um, for others in the field. And so it, this is where that sense of partnership, going back to the sustainable development goals, I think is, is really key and is a really important one. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity. I mean, I, what I, I've started to call it is um, what I call the transformational triangle, because I think one of the things that we have, at least I hope we've learned through the pandemic, is actually um, how important collaboration is within our sector. And that doesn't, that's not exclusive to our sector, it's every sector. Um, but if we really want um, business to be the, the sort of force for good that it purports that it wants to be, then to achieve that, it needs to collaborate. And, you know, when I say that collaboration, that triangle, I'm looking at government and I'm looking at business and I'm looking at the NGO third sector. And how can we actually be more effective together? Because governments create the right frameworks for businesses and the third sector to operate. But I really see business as the key, the key driver, the catalyst for change. They can be the engine room. They can make things happen. But people underestimate the really important role that the third sector, the NGO sector, play because they're the operators on the ground. And it's through them that you get the long-term sustainability because a business doesn't have time or the expertise to do both. And that's why I think, you know, greater and better collaboration across our industry, both with government, private sector, and the NGO sector would achieve transformational results, which I suppose is why I call it transformational triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, that kind of takes me back to the kind of the early idea of corporate social responsibility where businesses were in fact trying to, I guess, manage this on their own, right? Like this was the model of maybe the early 2000s, like where businesses were starting to feel some of that, that wish to give back, that wish to create change. So they had departments that are looking at, you know, what, what is corporate social responsibility? What should we be doing? How can we do it? But just as you mentioned, it's not necessarily where they're set up. That's not why they created their business in the first place. Yeah. So it's not where their skill set lies. And so then again, people maybe got turned off from that idea because it took away energy. It took away focus. It wasn't succeeding and thriving because it wasn't where they should have been maybe putting their direction. And so this 
collaboration allows for that to still happen without it becoming putting people doing the things that they shouldn't be doing. Like everybody does the mm-hmm. thing they do best and then we combine. And then like you said, exactly. this is where we can create the impact. <laughs> it's about harnessing the expertise where the expertise exists. And, you know, as I say, I, you know, cause I, because I've ended up over my career working with, you know, governments and big international um, trade associations in travel and tourism um, so I understand how, how they operate and the role and function that they can play. But fundamentally, I'm actually, my natural space is being, being in the business world. And in setting up Just a Drop, I was very aware of the criticism that can be thrown at charities about um, wasting money and not delivering. And so I was very, um, and people not knowing exactly uh, what was happening to to the money and funds? And I thought, right, we're not going to be like that. You know, we're we're absolutely going to ensure that whatever we deliver, people can have trust and faith that you know that we are we are who we're saying we are, and that we will deliver on our promise. And they are part of the journey as well, and be completely transparent about it. And and if we have projects that are challenging and um, take us a while to make successful we 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 own up to that and you know we we explain what the challenge might be um so it's it, but but at least we have the expertise to resolve those problems um mm-hmm. so it's it, it for me all of it it just boils down to exactly the same thing time and time again is that word that nobody understood in in the late 1990s sustainability and it's about long-term, sustainable, appropriate solutions that we all collaborate to help help make happen and achieve in a partnership. Mm-hmm. That's such a great segue to where I wanted to go is, you know, we are really seeing now a consumer-driven need to meet sustainability initiatives that our travelers, we're seeing more travelers who are asking for more meaningful trips, that they want to have a greater impact when they travel. Um, And then businesses in turn are also looking kind of, they've reflected over this period of time, they're trying to figure out can, how can we build back better? If we're not going to go back, how do we move forward? And I'm just wondering um, if you might provide maybe a few ideas of how people can either tap into this sense of purpose and responsibility within their businesses or maybe outside of strategic collaborations, what can businesses do to support and facilitate this kind of change? What would you suggest would be a first step when they're examining how to make this sort of transition? Um, well, if we think about the the responsible traveler, and I think there's, there, there's, there is an evolving um, traveler now. I think there is a trend towards um, more immersive experiences. And as a consequence, you know, travel businesses will need to reflect that. Um, and I think what responsible travellers are looking for now more than ever is a way to connect with local people, um, look at local lifestyles, local experiences, um, local cuisine. Um, so the word local becomes quite significant. And there'll always be a market for those, um, quite rightly, that want to flop down at a beach and, you know, and be at a, a resort and drink and party. But there is definitely a more discerning traveler now. And I think, you know, the millennials are starting to reflect that increasingly. And as a traveler, I think you have to be very conscious now. And I hopefully we will see more of that of the environmental and social impacts that you are having when you travel and how those can either be negative or positive. And so, for example, it was only a couple of years ago that um, Cape Town had a real panic that they were going to end up completely running out of water um, as a whole time. And that catalyzed the tourist industry, other businesses, local government, uh, the local population to look at how should behaviours change. And with the growth of, of 
of an impact of climate change, um, I think that kind of situation is going to arise increasingly. And so I would always say to people, be very aware of your water usage. You know, and it, it's quite difficult for um, sometimes for people to think like that because we're so used to turning on a tap and getting water. But actually, when you're traveling, it's one of those areas to, to feel particularly responsible about. And, you know, I think, again, look at the positive contributions that you can make when traveling. So, you know, eat in local restaurants, even if you are in a resort, don't feel that you have to stay in that resort the whole time. Take, take advantage of the opportunity to explore the less beaten tracks. So, you know, explore a destination, almost be a temporary local as opposed to a tourist. Think about it in those terms. How can you either leave no footprint or a positive footprint on the journey that you've been on? And, you know, travel companies, in terms of response to that, need to think about the sort of experiences that they're looking to, to offer. And in this climate now, I think we should all get to the point where we measure our carbon footprint. We measure the footprint of our holidays that businesses measure their carbon footprint and we all have to aim to move towards a, a, a net zero strategy. And that, that will take time. And I think people can be a bit apprehensive of that and not feel that they've quite got the knowledge and expertise to do that. But the knowledge and expertise does exist and it's far more important that you step on the journey and make those incremental steps then are too fearful to get on it the pathway in the first place mm -hmm. so I think we've got a massive opportunity as an industry and you know some of the you know the bigger companies are are investing lots in terms of research and development which is really encouraging we know that the future of aviation is, you know, for it to have a future, it has to move away from um, fossil fuels and develop, you know, different different fuel sources. So all of that is going on in the background. But actually, the industry is made up of lots of small, medium sized businesses. And a bit like just a drop, you know, if each of these businesses starts to think more consciously of its own footprint, um, then it has a massive collective impact. And we start to become an industry that genuinely is sustainable, is responsible and can be a force for good. And to do that, we can make it easier for ourselves if we all decide how to effectively collaborate and find the appropriate partners for your own business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I love how it keeps coming back to this idea of collaboration. Um, I just, that's kind of been my favorite thing that I've seen is that truly starting to happen um, again over this period of this pandemic. Um, I wanted to go back to the um, the comments you were making about local and you mentioned kind of traveling as if you live there. And that is one of those concepts that's really at the root of my company of Lotus Sojourns. And there's a quote um, that I just thought I would share. This is something that I kind of always tap into in a in the space of planning engagement with community and traveling. Um, and it's by John Raskin. And he said, it is a good and safe rule to sojourn in every place as if you meant to spend your life there, never omitting an opportunity to do a kindness or speaking a true word or making a friend. And I just think like, if we operate out of that space yeah mm, no that's beautiful you need to send me that quote now because I was like hey use it again yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah no that's 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 absolutely right though it is and I I do think that there is a bit of a change um I think the younger generation have a different view and approach to traveling to the generation that I, I've been involved in. And that gives me hope. It really does. Um, but um, I'd like to see the talking stop or be in the background and in the foreground 
to see more action. And I would just encourage everybody to start taking those vital, essential steps. And, you know, we're, we're on a journey with, with just a drop. And I mean, our environmental footprint isn't at all bad, really. Um, but, or, or so I'm led to believe, but we're about to set on a journey, which involves us measuring every single project that we do in every country that we do it in, as well as the organization itself, in order to, to go on that journey to become net zero as an organization. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know another charitable organization at this point in time that's actually committed to doing that, but I'm very committed to it. And um, my team is, and we're a small, small organization. So, you know, and we work in, in six destinations across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So if, if we can do it, um, you know, every, every project that we do will be different. But if we can do, do that, then I feel that we are living our values. And as I say, actions speak louder than words. And as Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see. So, you know, we can't, we can't beat the drum about sustainability without living it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes. So my, I would just be positive about it and say, if we can think of going on this journey, <laughs> and I'm sure we will be challenged by it at times, but, but I think we'll learn an awful lot. And it's by learning a lot that we actually start to change behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it's through that, that I think is, is actually the, the positive thing. It would be great to become net zero, yes, but it's actually all the learnings that we get on that journey will change our behaviors anyway, which is great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I wanted I wanted to um, bring that up because I, I think it's, um, one, really impressive to be uh, in, in the reach of that goal. And then also, two, to just really uh, let people hear the message that it's okay to try and it's okay to not get it right the first time. And it's okay for this to be a a learning process because we're not at the place in our history where there's this like step-by-step instruction on how to be carbon zero in every single business. And so we do have to, again, collaborate. We have to lean on each other to find the solutions, but most importantly is we just have to take a step forward and, and, start creating those changes that will create the outcome that that we need as a global community. So um, thank you for sharing that. And I think that um, I hope that it inspires people, again, kind of like you were mentioning, to go to these small and medium-sized organizations that it's okay for us to try to. We don't need a team who is like designed and built for this that already knows how to put it into place. Um, I've spoken with other people too that said, you know, I just started Googling things and then I started calling people and then all of a sudden I'm the expert and they're like, I've only been doing this for six months, but somehow I've like Googled more things than other people have Googled. (laughs) And it's really this space where I think a lot of people are uncomfortable. Like they really want to be an, an expert in something like this before they take an action. And I think we can't wait for that to happen. We need everybody to be looking at this from all the angles. And I think that's also where we'll see more solutions is by everybody getting their skin in the game and then, and then doing things wrong and then figuring out what's the right way. And and then we'll be able to be moving forward. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And we just need to own it. And, and we need to see it as a real positive opportunity. Um, and to be honest, you know, we have to do that because we all we are are custodians at this point in time for the planet. Um, and and I, I, I really do believe that there's a reason why um, it's called Mother Nature, because um, mothers um, are very nurturing and they want to protect their cubs. And if anything... Um, comes in any way, shape, or form that could bring them harm, they come out fighting hard. And I look at what's happening to the planet currently, and we've got wildfires in California and and Australia. We've got 
flooding in lots of different parts of the world. You know, the planet's angry with us and it's mankind that has undertaken and done this. And it's just warning us, you know, it's it's telling us actually the balance isn't right and we have to put it right. And so it, it is hitting us right now and it will continue to hit us until we do get it right. I remember being in a, and I was really surprised at myself, but I remember being in Rome in Italy um, with my son Cameron and he was just, a, he, he was only three, four months old. We'd gone, we'd taken this trip in a camper van down to, to Rome from Wimbledon. And I was walking the streets and this young girl came with a, a sort of cardboard thing and shoved it in my, my, my stomach. And I looked at her and it was intended as a distraction because I suddenly felt somebody else having a go at my back back pocket. And I was just so shocked, much more shocked than I would have been had I been on my own because I had Cameron in my arms. And Nigel, my husband, was in the distance, but he heard me scream, turned around, and he said, Fiona, all you did was take your right arm and you spun around so fast with Cameron in your ears and you just clocked her, punched her to get her away. (laughs) And that was my animal instinct coming out because I was fearful of my child coming into harm. And and there's just an instinctive thing. I've never done anything like it in my life. And it's instinctive. And, And I think Mother Nature is telling us now we have to instinctively act and therefore, you know, I would just encourage everybody to do what they can. And collectively, we will make a difference. And we need to make that difference. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for this time today and sharing your story and sharing um, all of these parts of tourism and just a drop and um, sustainability and our our responsibility. Um, I really appreciate this. Um, Before we end, um, two things I'd like to have you share how people can connect with you, how they can learn more about um, engaging with Just a Drop. And then I have a series of seven rapid fire questions to wrap up our conversation. Oh, my. (laughs) I hope I can answer your rapid fire uh, or seven. So how can you get in touch with it? Well, by all means, um, people can contact me directly um, by email. Um, I'm on Fiona at FionaJeffrey.com. Um, and Jeffrey is E-R-Y, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. Um, so that's easy. And and also, um, by all means, visit our website, justadrop.org, www.justadrop.org. Um, there you'll find information about our programs and in each of our destinations. If you'd like to get involved and engage, then I'd be delighted and, you know, just really happy to share where we can and help where we can. Thank you. I just, um, I feel so grateful to have learned about you and your work and to just see all the ways that this program impacts people. So I really encourage people to go ahead and and take a look and just see, because I think it will resonate differently for different people, but it really is an issue that is universal and intersects with so many things. So, Um, okay. The rapid fires are easy. We can do this. (laughs) Um, I hope so. I'm not really good at stuff like this. (laughs) and, And rapid fire is a loose term, but um, what is your favorite book or movie that offers you a travel escape or inspires you to adventure? Uh, one of my favorite books um, is Wild Swans, which is the generation of three women in China. And really, it's the most, I forget the name of the authoress or the author off the top of my head, but it's just the most amazing journey in history, in time, the evolution of of female independence. And I read it at a time when China wasn't particularly understood or well-known, and I just found it a fascinating and and interesting read and um, and then had the opportunity to visit China um, and found that a fascinating exploration as well. So, so that was probably be number one. 
what is always in your suitcase or backpack when you travel? Ah, well, toothbrush. <laughs> but I think, uh, what was it? What else? My notebook. Because if I want to absorb stuff, then I tend to want to write things down. So mm-hmm. my notebook would be that. Um, what has been your favorite destination? Ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, my favorite continent is Africa. Yeah. And my favorite destination in Africa, probably Kenya, Uganda. Kenya, I went to on my honeymoon. Uganda, I've been there a lot and I love the people. And I also still want to go and visit the gorillas. So that's on my to-do list. So I'll say Uganda for the moment. And hopefully I can fill it. Yeah, I hope you can. Um, my my wish is the next time I go to Uganda that I can also visit the gorillas. So maybe uh, there's yeah. something in alignment there in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and we just said, where do you still long to visit? But is there any anywhere else besides that specific experience? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to explore other parts of, of Asia. I'd love to be able to go to Myanmar, but, you know, it's not appropriate at, point in t- at this point in time. So, so yes, I would probably put Myanmar there, but Iceland as well. Where else? And another thing I'd like to do, but I will hold off doing it for a while, is just get in a camper van and go around the north of Scotland because it is my own country. Um, but I haven't been uh, explored all around there. And my mother always says to me that Scotland is God's own country. So I think I need to visit God's own country. <laughs> um, I've never been to Scotland, but I have this like deep need to be immersed in nature there. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that <laughs> Just this sense of like real... And I grew up in Montana, which is a very rural, you know, rustic, beautiful nature um, environment as well. But there's something, I don't know what that energy is that feels like this calling to just like being real, really deeply connected with nature and the earth. Um, Let's see, what do you eat that immediately connects you to a place you've been? Uh, Right. Um, It's not something I eat regularly. But um, I remember being on a on a mountainside um, or a hillside in eating Nigeria with um, an Ethiopian tribe, and we were doing project work in Ethiopia at the time. But I was also there with a Welshman and an Englishman, and in order we all had to entertain. Um, our hosts around the campfire and I can't sing but I decided what's the thing I know so I sang of Flower of Scotland and that meant that each of my 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 um, colleagues ended up singing both the, the English and the Welsh national anthems because they couldn't come up with anything else <laughs> but it was a very unique moment to taste that food around the campfire in Ethiopia being welcomed by the, those tribes people Thank you. Um, who was the person that inspired or encouraged you to set out and explore the world? Uh, I think I have to give credit to my parents who were quite happy to, to um, kick me out the door. <laughs> they said, go and explore the world, Fiona. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, it, it was probably them. And then, you know, um, that just that spirit of adventure right from the time of being a student um I I got such a buzz getting on a plane and going somewhere I didn't know Mm -hmm. so um and and I don't think that's ever left me which is why I am a huge advocate for travel and tourism but we just need to do it um in a sustainable responsible environmentally conscious way yeah agreed it's something that offers us something so rich and important, but looking at what we can do to create it and in a way that really is beneficial to all, to everyone. Let's see, last one. If you could take an adventure with one person, fictional or real, alive or past, who would it be? Ooh, 
Um, who would it be? David Attenborough. Perfect. um well thank you so much i greatly appreciate this time spent together and the connection and um, i really hope that other people are inspired to action by this conversation oh thank you well thank you so much christine i really have enjoyed it and i hope um i hope people have found it interesting anyway and my door is always open so i'm delighted to hear from you again and, and your listeners Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Soul of Travel. I hope you enjoyed the journey. If you love this conversation, I encourage you to subscribe, rate the podcast, and share the episodes that inspire you with others. I am so proud of the way these conversations are bringing together people from around the world. If this sounds like your community, welcome. I am so happy you are here. You can find all the ways you can be a part of the Soul of Travel and Lotus Sojourns community at www.lotussojourns.com. Here you can learn more about Soul of Travel and my guests. You can see details about the transformational sojourns I guide for women, as well as my book Sojourn, which offers an opportunity to explore your heart, mind, and the world through the pages of books specially selected to create a unique journey. I am all about community and would love to connect. You can find me on Facebook at Lotus Sojourns and join our community, the Lotus Sojourns Collective. Or follow me on Instagram, either at Lotus Sojourns or at Soul of Travel Podcast. Stay up to date by joining the Lotus Sojourns mailing list. I look forward to getting to know you and hopefully hear your story. Mm-hmm.